Hey, we are in this series, Journey to Jerusalem, and I love this series. It's been great uh, studying for it, and also there's been a number of people kind of playing in in the teaching this time, which has been fun too. And so uh, we are now at uh, the fourth message, and I just want to give you a, a brief recap to give you context because it's important to start us off. So the second half of the book of John is completely devoted to the last week of Jer- Jesus' earthly life prior to the crucifixion, the whole second half of the gospel. And we've been doing a survey of that second half of the gospel, particularly looking at this trip. The whole thing is built around this trip down to Jerusalem. And uh, we started off in Bethany, and that's where we said that this was the preparation for the trip. This is kind of where it was like we were seeing people being separated, those who were true worshipers, those who weren't. Uh, We saw Judas get all bent out of shape because there was too much money spent in worshiping Jesus. And there were some who their destination was to the cross where they're separated from Christ. But there's others whose destination is the resurrection where they're united with Christ. And the the scene is already being set. The second week after that, Josh Hostetter walked us through the, uh, the arrival as Jesus comes into Jerusalem. And that was, you know, the, there's just all this craziness on that day because there's all sorts of Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled in the middle of that. Uh, And then also you have these people who have the wrong picture of who Jesus is and want him for the wrong reasons. And and so they're not receiving him appropriately. And then last week we moved into the last 24 hours of Jesus' life before the crucifixion at at the Last Supper. And that was called, we entitled that The Food. And, and Pastor Dave brought that. Dave Willard brought that to us. And, you know, of course, he gave me grief because there's not very much mention of food in John's account of the Last Supper. But it's all good because what, what we're talking about is in our journey with God, we need to be fueled. And Jesus very clearly is, his love is what we feast on, is, which is why we call our, our, our communion services the, the love feast. Because we're feasting on the love of God. And that's the whole point. Um, so that started the last 24 hours of Jesus' ministry, or of Jesus' life prior to the crucifixion. This week and the next week and the following week are, and last week are all about that last 24 hours. And uh, when we get to Palm Sunday here, um, we're going to be dealing with the crucifixion. We're not going to be dealing with Palm Sunday because we dealt with Palm Sunday uh, two weeks ago when uh, Josh Hoster walked us through the arrival. That was Palm Sunday. So just to let you know, that Sunday morning is going to be, I, I'm going to be focusing on the crucifixion, not on uh, on Palm Sunday. So um, that's where we're going to be camping out uh, is, is in the last 24 hours. Now we're still sitting around the table with Jesus, with John and the disciples and Jesus here. And they just finished the, you know, he washed their feet and he broke bread and, and the wine and all of that. And now he's sitting there. And this is the last teaching of Jesus prior to his crucifixion. There are, there are a couple um, other interactions that he has with them in the garden in prayer, like when Peter takes an ear off of someone and he kind of corrects him for that and things like that. But this is the last serious teaching of Jesus and only the Gospel of John captures it. The Synoptic Gospels, uh, Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they don't have it. And so this is uniquely found in the Gospel of John and we assume that they're still sitting, uh, lounging around the table here and that Jesus knows that the end is near and this is the last teaching that he gives them. Okay, now this is three chapters. This is a gigantic chunk of scripture and obviously we're not going to... Um, if we did that, I, maybe someday I will stop and not preach and just have us read the scripture um, for a Sunday morning. That wouldn't be all bad. But, um, you know, uh, we don't have the time to read the three passages, uh, the three chapters and have me give a sermon. And I think I'm supposed to give a sermon. So 
we're going to do a pick, pull different parts of these three chapters. I'm going to speak, uh, I'm going to read mostly from John chapter 14, but then I'm going to pull a little bit from a couple verses from 15 and 16 as well. So I, normally I have you stand in honor of God's word, but you can stand on the inside because if you have your scriptures with you and you're going to be following along, you're going to have to jump around. So I'm going to let you sit down and just concentrate on reading the word, okay? So uh, join me. I'm going to be reading starting in verse 1 of chapter 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen, the, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing this work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or, at least, believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask for anything in my name and I will do it. If you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And on that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my father and I too will love him and show myself to him. You can skip down to verse 25. And this I have spoken while still with you. But the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. In chapter 15, I want to look at verse 9 through 11. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. And in chapter 16, you can turn to verse 5. 
go down to verse 7. Now I am going to him who sent me. And yet none of you asks, where are you going? Because I have said these things. You are filled with grief. But I tell you the truth. It is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And then the last verse of the entire teaching there, down at the end of chapter 16, verse 33. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. May God add his richest blessings to the reading of his word. Join me in prayer, please. Your word is alive and it's amazing. And as I think about this passage, even as Josh and I were praying um, prior to the first service this morning, we were saying, you know, this is, this is one of those passages of scripture that the layers are just crazy. You know, all of scripture is God breathed. And yet when we read the last teaching that you give before your crucifixion and it's just dripping with the depth of your heart for these disciples and your mind revealing what it is that's going to happen. We just ask, God, that you would take this passage and open it up for us this morning and allow us to receive it. And you would speak, not not only would you reveal the logos, the the written word, but you would speak rhema to us, God, that it it would come alive and it would communicate into our hearts and our lives right now. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Whenever I go to a large city, one of my favorite things to do is to ride the subway. I, for some reason, I love riding the subway. Maybe it's because when I was a kid, we go down to the city and see a family down in Philly, or maybe it's four years in Chicago at school and always riding the public transportation there. But I love riding the subway. And I've had a couple conferences up in New York in the last few months, and uh, I, I, that's fortunate for me. I like being in the city. And so I you know, jumped on the the New York subway system, but the New York subway systems, it's a whole nother beast. Like, you know, there's all sorts of different lines that are going all sorts of different places. And just because you are on the right line there doesn't mean it's the right train. There's like four different lines running on each track. And then there's the express trains and there's the local trains. And when you're trying to get where you're going, you need a little help if you're new to the city, you know. Fortunately, there's an app for that. You know, uh, there's plenty of apps for that, uh, for the New York subway system in particular, you know, that has, it has, uh, you know, you just punch in where you're going and it tells you, all right, you need to take this line to this line, transfer here and get on this, you know, and it gives you a map and all of that. And so you can map it all out and you can find your orientation and figure out, all right, this is where I'm going. That's great and all, but the GPS doesn't work under the ground, you know, so there's no, once you're under the ground, you're out of cell range. And so you can't actually, uh, you don't have GPS down there in the subway system. So you have to orient yourself. And when you're walking around the streets or on the bus or whatever, find GPS. But once you get down there, you're kind of on your own. It's you and a map, you know, it's like the wild west and you got orientation with your map. It's a good thing that I'm an Eagle Scout and I learned orientation, you know, that doesn't actually help. Um, so I get on the train, and this is, this happened uh, the last time I was there. I'm on the train, and, and every time I'm there, actually something happens. 
Well, I'm down there and I, and I get it all figured out. I'm on the right train. I'm not on the express. I'm on the local. I make this transfer. I get on this train, go here. And then finally we get to the last stop. And when we get to the last stop, this is where it all goes haywire for me. There's the shuffle of everyone getting on and off the subway, all the chaos. We step off the train and then there's, see what happens at that point is you walk down the corridors and you go through the turnstiles and you go up these stairs that go back and forth. And then finally you come up on street level and chances are you're probably you might be right in the middle of a block, you know? And it's like, okay, on the map, I knew I was supposed to be at this intersection near like 34th or Broadway or whatever, but I don't know what street I'm on and I'm looking around and I don't know any of these buildings and I've never been here before and it made sense on the map, but now that I'm here on street level, I have no idea where I am. I don't even know which way is north, you know? And so I can either like, at this point, I can either ask someone Lord forbid, in New York City, you stop and ask someone, you know, or I can get out my GPS and make it very clear that I have no idea where I'm going and be a laughing stock, or I can just start walking until I get to an intersection and find a road sign and hopefully get oriented. Those are kind of my options at this point, but I'm lost. I don't know which way is north. How many of us have been lost recently? You know, and I'm not talking necessarily about being lost in some big city, I'm not even necessarily talking about being lost in the winding back roads of southeastern Pennsylvania that, by the way, seem to go in all four directions and yet never even make a circle. I don't know how that works, but um, there's something weird going on there, you know? Um, and I'm not talking about being lost in a corn maze with your kids, you know, and not knowing how to... I mean, how many of us have, like, been lost in life, you know? Like, lost in life, yes. Where it's like, I thought I knew how this was going to go. There was a plan to my life, you know? This is, this is the way I thought it was going to be. I, I, I went to school and I studied. And, and my plan was I was going to go to school and I was going to study. Then I was going to get a decent job. I was going to find that person to settle down with. We were going to have kids. We were going to live happily ever, ever after. We were going to find a good church. We were going to serve God. That's the way it was going to work. But then the, autom- the economy tanks, it turns out that that person I was with Holy, are you kidding me? You know, and then it's like, I, I lost my job and I might even be 50 now and just lost my job and no one seems to want to hire me. Now, we wanted to have kids, but we couldn't have kids or we lost a kid or that person who I love, we lost or those things, those theologies that I held on to that seem so legit and black and white. Now, all of a sudden, there's a lot of confusion around me because my church did this and this happened. And you know what? On the map, it's not that I don't trust God with the destination, but up here right now on street level, when I'm looking around, I don't know where I am. And I don't know which way is north. And I don't know what to do. If you've ever felt that way, then you have, at least on a microcosmic level, a little picture of how the apostles were about to feel. Because you see, this is how it went for them. They had a plan for their life too. They had a great plan for their life. Like Peter, James, and John, they could fish. And they had a good business. And they had it going, and they had a good sea, and they had all this going on, you know. And Matthew, he was probably making money hand over fist as a tax collector. And they all had these plans for their lives. And they probably had girls that they were looking into and all of that, you know. And they knew what they were going to be about. And they had an idea about what, what the theology was. And they were probably good Jewish boys going to synagogue and doing all of that. You know, and they had a plan for their lives. But then Jesus comes along. And what happens when Jesus comes along? It blows their mind. Because whatever their plans were, all of a sudden, it just rocks their world. And, and, and you have to know Jesus in order to understand. Because this is what happens. You see, Jesus, 
What happens when he teaches and when he talks is everything in the past, like from the beginning on, he makes sense of everything. Like all the scriptures, all the things that they had been taught, like everything about it makes sense. And then when they look into the future, it's crazy. He seems to know stuff about the future. But the fact that he can make sense of the past and can understand what's going to happen in the future isn't the amazing part. The amazing part is that somehow he understands how it all dovetails and fits right here and now today and how my life fits right in the middle of it all. And when I'm with him, everything makes sense. And so these guys, it's not only that that Jesus can teach. I mean, he's also, he, for goodness sakes, he's giving sight to the blind. The lame are walking. Those who were demon-possessed are free. And, and he's even raised people from the dead at this point. He has the power. Like, these guys are ready to sell out, and so they do. They get rid of their business. They, they, they leave family and home, and they leave everyone to go and follow Jesus. And for three years, they have walked with this man. And for three years, they didn't know where they were sleeping that night, and they didn't know where their next meal was coming from. And what's more is, is they didn't seem to really care. Because when they were with him, there could be 5,000 hungry people, and he could feed them. And they could be on a storm in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and things could be going crazy, and he wakes up, and he calms the storm. They don't need navigation systems. They don't need a game plan for their life. They don't need a place to stay. All they need is Jesus. And when they have Jesus, everything else seems to work out just fine. They have Jesus. It's pretty cool, isn't it? It's awesome. It's worth selling out for. And so they did, and they followed him. But here's the dilemma. You see, they were on this trip to Jerusalem, and they know that this guy's the Messiah. They've figured that out. They've said it, and he's affirmed it. You know, in any other situation where you have people who leave their homes and sell all their properties to go follow some spiritual leader, we call that a cult. The only difference between Jesus and a cult is that he actually was the Messiah. You know? Everything else about it looks like a cult, except for the fact that this one's legit, and it's worth selling out for. And so they do, and they follow him, but they now, they know he's the Messiah, and he's affirmed that he's the Messiah, and they're headed down to Jerusalem, and less than a week ago, there was palm branches that were laid on the ground, and there was people shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, and they are seeing this thing play out in front of them. And believe me, they have another plan again. They've let go of the plans about the fishing job and all of that, but they have developed another plan at this point. And it entails Jesus, but it entails the kingdom of God. And their picture of the kingdom of God is without a doubt that they are coming down to Jerusalem right now to coronate this guy as the king. That's, that's what they're thinking. Jesus has been trying so hard over the last few years to tell them, listen, things aren't going to go exactly the way you think. Um, Trying to give instructions to these guys is kind of like trying to give instructions to someone who's never been to a city. Instructions. When Jen came to Moody, um, her, she had never been to Chicago before. We w- both went to school at Moody in Chicago. She had never been there before. And, you know, she was from Lancaster County, Paradise. And uh, par- seriously, Paradise. You know, I, I love to say that I married a girl from Paradise. Um, and uh, she... Her parents bring her to Chicago 
from Lancaster County, drop her off in a high-rise dormitory in downtown Chicago, and it's like, all right, see ya. You know, that's a moment. Imagine if you're trying to give instructions to someone who's coming to a, to a city who's never really been in the city, and you're trying to give them directions. That's a little bit of a tricky thing because they don't have any framework in their mind. And Jesus, for a long time, has been trying to explain to them the destination. You might understand that the destination is the kingdom of God, but what that looks like to you in your imagination and your mind, that's not how it's going to go. You know, and he keeps trying to share that with them, but they have no framework in their mind by which to understand that. So it never sticks, you know, and they keep defaulting back to the, what they imagine this thing being. Jesus at this point knows that he's 24 hours away from things massively changing and he needs to inform them at what they need to know, because here's the big, big misnomer. Here's the, here's, here's the, the elephant in the room is that this one who just broke the bread and drank the cup, this one who they followed for three and a half years, this one who's sitting in front of them, talking to them right now, within 24 hours, less than 24 hours, he is going to be a cold, dead corpse in the tomb. How's that for a shift in reality? They have no idea what's about to hit them. And their plan is about to get rocked to the core. And their life is going to be turned completely and totally upside down. And all the promises that Jesus gave about the kingdom of God and all of that, they're not going to fail. But these guys, once they get to street level and see what's actually happening here in Jerusalem and what Jesus came for, they are going to be completely and totally lost. And they're going to have no idea which way is north. And the only person who knows how to navigate these things is Jesus, and he's going to be dead. Then what? See, it's going to be a scary, scary time for these guys. And Jesus feels deeply for them. He has a huge level of compassion for them. And so... He knows at this point that he can't actually prepare them, so to speak, to understand what's coming. But he wants to give them a last teaching so that when it all happens, they can remember some words that he brings them. And the first words he says in the beginning of chapter 14, do not let your hearts be troubled. That's a pretty tall order, isn't it? To not let their, I mean, that's a command. Do not let your hearts be troubled. How is it that he knows that in 24 hours he's going to be laying in that tomb and yet he feels it's appropriate to tell them not to let their hearts be troubled? That's a tall order. He begins to set the stage by saying this. He says, hey, guys, I'm going to my father's house to prepare a place for you. If you were a journeyman on Tuesday, you heard Mike talk about that a little bit. And Mike talked about the fact that in, in uh, Hebrew uh, culture back then, there's this idea of a man, if he was going to marry a woman, he would go back to the dad's house and build an addition onto the house. And the whole engagement period was not about so much about setting up the wedding ceremony and how long that would take or whatever. It was about how long it took for him to build the house next to his dad's place. And once that was done and they had a place to move into, all right, well, the engagement's up and we can get married now. And that that imagery may be playing in here. And that's true. That may be playing in. It may be that they, they understand, like, this is a picture of, of a bridegroom going and preparing a place.
place and, and, and uh, you know, when he comes back to get them, there will be a place for them. And that's all fine and good, but that still doesn't explain in their mind, where are you actually going and when are you leaving and what's this all about? And so you hear Thomas and Jesus says, and, you, and by the way, you'll know the way to this place. And Thomas is great. Thomas is always awesome, you know, like he's the one who's like, I'm not believing in Jesus until I see the holes in his hands and the holes in his feet after the resurrection, you know, and people call him Doubting Thomas, Pastor Bob, who's pastor here for like 40 years. When I was a kid, I remember him saying, uh, he's not Doubting Thomas, he's Honest Thomas, you know, and there's truth to that. He's the guy who's like, all right, let's be realistic here. And he says it again. He's like, Jesus, we don't know where you're going. So how in the world would we know the way to where you're going? Like, we don't even have the map or the destination, let alone the way to get there, you know? And Jesus says this to him. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except by me. And so what's happening is, is they thought destination was Jerusalem, but he's trying to tell them right now, there's actually another destination. You remember where he's going. And we said this back at the preparation. It says that he endured the cross and he despised the shame so that he could sit down at the right hand of the throne of God. He was headed back to the Father. And he tells them right now that he's headed back to the Father to prepare a place for them. And if they will follow him, that they're supposed to somehow have a connection with the Father. Now, this is a little confusing for these guys, you can imagine. So Philip is like, okay, can you help me out a little bit? Why don't you do this, Jesus? Just show us the Father, and maybe everything will start to make a little more sense to us. To which Jesus responds, don't you even know me, Philip? It's kind of an odd response. I just asked you to show me the Father, and you said, don't you even know me? Like, what's that even have to do with it? And, and he says, well, listen, if you know me, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. Now put yourself in the apostles' shoes for a second, honestly. So what you're telling us, Jesus, is that we thought Jerusalem's the destination, but you're saying you're going to the fathers. You're going to this other place, and you're going to come back for us. But we're supposed to know the way there, and you're the way there. And we're supposed to, and we know who the father is, but you're the father. So you're the father, you're going to see the father, and you're the way to the father, and we're supposed to know that, but you're coming back. Really? You know, like, if you think about that, it doesn't seem like it's bringing a whole lot of clarity to them at this moment. You can imagine their confusion. But as confused as they are in this conversation, it's not nearly as confused as they're going to be in 24 hours when Jesus is in a tomb. And because of that, Jesus is trying to help them understand the hope in the situation. Because there actually is a hope. And what Jesus says to them is, is he says, if you remain in me in chapter 15 and my love remains in you, then you will have joy and you will have joy and everything will be okay. But how are they supposed to remain in him when he's leaving? You understand the whole dilemma in here? In here? It just doesn't make much sense. There's two reasons why their world are, are, is, is about to be completely rocked. One is because, because they thought this kingdom of God was a physical kingdom. And they couldn't comprehend that it's a spiritual kingdom. That, 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 just, that thought, the Messiah is the son of David. David was the king who ruled over the physical world. That's all they could think of. The fact that this is a whole spiritual thing, they can't actually anticipate that. They had this other idea in their mind of where the destination is, and they couldn't picture what Jesus was saying. How many of us, at some point in our life, 
have had a picture of what we thought things were supposed to look like, you know? And then after a while, we realized, like, God's idea about this was radically different than what my idea was, you know? And it, and, and it takes a whole process and a lot of pain to come to the realization of that. And so on one level, that's what's about to happen to them. But here's the worst part. It's not just that their picture of where things were supposed to be is going to get rocked. The second thing is, is that their guide is about to die. Now, I want, to, I want you to picture some exotic place in the world that you've always wanted to visit. You know, maybe it's, maybe it's going on a safari over in South Africa. Or maybe it's going to, to uh, you know, Hong Kong and walking through the streets of Hong Kong. But somewhere on the other side of the world, that's either out in wilderness with dangerous animals or in a country-packed city streets with chaos around and you don't understand the language and you have a guide who's showing you the way and you're on this trip. But here you are in the middle of this place in the city or here you are in the middle of this jungle surrounded by all these animals and all of a sudden your guide drops dead of a heart attack. Where does that leave you? You know? It leaves you in a tough spot, doesn't it? I don't know the language. I don't know where I am. I thought everything was all good and this trip was great, but it was all because I was with this guide. And as soon as the guide is gone, all bets are off, man. We have no idea what's happening. And this is the way it was for these guys. Not only did they have an image of what things were going to be and that image is about to be rocked, it's also that the one who guided them through every stormy sea and every place of confusion is no longer going to be there for them in the middle of it. Now that is cause for concern. That's a cause for, for worry. And so they had a deep sense, Jesus had a deep sense that they were going to be really worried. And so he says to them, do not let your hearts be troubled. And he offers them hope. Now here's the hope, is that he says that when he leaves, and he does say he's going to leave, that he's going to send another one to be their guide, their counselor, their reminder. I don't know if any of you are Star Wars fans. Um, when I was a kid, I collected Star Wars figures and I watched some Star Wars movies and stuff. Um, the first episode ever to come out is not episode one. What episode is it? Episode four. See, there's some of you are Star Wars junkies. Episode four is the, is the first Star Wars that, that was released, okay? And in episode four, there was this rising young Jedi star who was Luke Skywalker. Luke Skywalker was discovered and encountered and developed by a Jedi master by the name of Obi-Wan. Obi-Wan, he will eventually find Yoda, but who leads him to Yoda is Obi-Wan. And Obi-Wan is the one who teaches him the basics of being a Jedi, and he's the one who guides him along his path and gives him a little context, kind of shows him who he is, gets him on the right path, and all of that. Now there's this problem, and the problem is, is that they get into this battle, and they're caught up in fighting the, the dark side, and they're fighting the Empire, and they're stuck in this building, and the only way out is if Obi-Wan decides that he's going to be the, the, the sacrifice. And if he's the sacrifice, these guys will go free. So he gets into a sword fight, a, a lightsaber fight, to be technical, with who? Darth Vader, right. And we don't even need to get into all the details of that. So they're in this sword fight, though. And in the middle of that sword fight, all of a sudden, he looks over at Luke, who's kind of getting away. And you realize that there's this thing that's happening. And there's like telepathic communication almost happening between these two guys. And it's like this sense of like, it's going to be okay. And honestly, this is so much like this passage right now, where it's like, it's going to be 
okay. And then what happens is, is Darth Vader takes out his lightsaber and he goes and winds up and you see, uh, uh, what's his name again? Obi-Wan Kenobi. He hits the button and, and the lightsaber comes down and he doesn't have any defenses. And here comes the swipe from Darth Vader. And all of a sudden, he just disappears. Obi-Wan just disappears and his cloak crumbles down and he's disembodied and Darth Vader's stepping around to try to find the body and there's no one there. And he can't find him. And you're like, Obi-Wan's gone and Luke is freaking out and you know it's a terrible moment and everything. But what you end up finding out later on is that Obi-Wan has gone and joined the Force. And the Force is this, you know, weird false theology, by the way. Um, and yeah, like, here, here's the, here, I'm going to just push pause for a second and say everything about Star Wars is based on pantheism, which is a total uh, crock. And is, you know, there's a bunch of world religions that are based on the lies of this, you know, false theology. Pantheism is that all our spirits meld into one and there's this one force that, that makes up who God is and that's pantheism and, and you know, like Buddhism and, and Hinduism all play with pantheism and all of that. And, and that's what it's all based on, Eastern mysticism that's just junk and it's lies, okay? So don't believe anything that Star Wars tells you. At the same time, I'm preaching about it. So um, when, and the reason is because God can use anything to communicate. It's crazy. He uses all sorts of things to communicate. And there's this microcosm of what just happened, what's happening here in this story with Jesus, with Obi-Wan. You know what the main difference between Obi-Wan and Jesus is? Is that Jesus is real and Obi-Wan's like a, a fictional character. And, and what's also is, is the difference is that Obi-Wan didn't die. I don't know what he did, but he didn't die. And that thing's not real. So we don't have to figure out what he did. But Jesus died physically on a cross for us. And he didn't just join some life force. He rose from the dead and ascended to heaven and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And then he said that when he got there, he was going to send his counselor to us. And if you watch the rest of Star Wars, you see there's these critical moments where Luke Skywalker is in deep need of help and you find Obi-Wan right there with him, kind of like in the spirit or something, in the force, talking to him, which again is a bunch of junk. But a very similar idea to what happens when, when Jesus goes to heaven and what he's telling them is he says, I'm leaving now, but I won't leave you as orphans. I won't leave you alone. I'm coming back to get you. Now, oftentimes when we hear that he's coming back, what we think is Jesus is going to return on the clouds and it's the rapture and it's the time when he takes us to heaven. And all of that is true. The scriptures reveal that. All of that is true. But honestly, what he's saying here is not just about rapture. It's not just about the future. Because what he says is the time is soon coming when they will no longer see me. What's that mean? That means he's going to die. He's going to resurrect. And when he resurrects, who sees him? Does everyone see him? No, only those who, he reveals himself to those who believe. And then he ascends into heaven. And when he ascends into heaven, he offers us this wonderful gift, this counselor who's here with us. And what he says is, they will no longer see me, but you will see me. And he says, because I live, you live. What is he talking about? Is he just talking about heaven? No, he's not. He says, on that day, and the day is the day that he lives again. 
The day that he lives again, we are born of the Spirit. We are baptized of the Spirit. We are born in Christ. We no longer live, but now Christ lives in us. And we become a part of the body of Christ, if in fact we believe. And if we do, there was a period of time where he ascended to heaven, and we were left without God. And Jesus told the apostles, go and pray in Jerusalem and wait. Just sit there and wait, and he will. Ret- I will return. And the, and the angel said, he will return to you. And so they go and they pray in that upper room, and they're sitting there and they're interceding and they're praying. And this is taking us back to the Acts church series that we just got out of. And you remember what happens. They're sitting there and they're praying and they're devoting themselves to prayer, and they're all about it. And then all of a sudden, something happens. When we celebrate Christmas... We have one word for Jesus that we use a lot, and it's called Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. Because God took himself and placed his son, Jesus, his only begotten son, and put him in human flesh and, and put him in the, in the physical body of this one Jesus and placed him in, in the womb of Mary and eventually in a stable in Bethlehem. And we say that that is God incarnate, God with us. Then he dies and then he resurrects, and then he leaves and goes to heaven, and we're left without God among us. But then he says that he won't leave us alone as orphans, and he sends his Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost to again be Emmanuel, God with us. And God right here, right now, today, if we believe, is with us. He's with us. What's more is, is that he's in us. You see, here's the thing is that Jesus says, I am leaving because it'll be better for you that I leave. It'll be better for you that I leave. And the reason he's saying that is because before, if you wanted to follow Jesus, you had to run up to Galilee where he was teaching, or you had to go down to Jerusalem, or you had to go up to Syria. You had to go to all these different places to find him wherever he was, and only so many people could get around him all at once. But what he's saying is, now that I leave, I can come in the Spirit. And I can be with the people in Jerusalem and the people in Galilee and the people in the persecuted church of China and the people of of the church down in Latin America and and that church in Africa, the reviving church of Uganda and in North Korea and in America and over with the church in England. And I can be in all of those places and in all of those people and I can be in your bedroom and I can be on street level with you when you look around and don't know where you're at and what's going on. I can be with you. Because I won't leave you as orphans. I don't leave you alone. I'm going to come and I'm going to return to you. And he did return on the day of Pentecost. He returned. And he came and decided to dwell inside of those who would believe. And we have believed. And he has come and dwelt with us. And he dwells among us. And those who believe can see him. And see, this is the first part of why they were going to be so freaked out as they thought it was a physical kingdom, but it turned out to be a spiritual kingdom. And this is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we live by faith and not by sight. Because if we want the relationship with God, he's in the spirit now, not in the flesh with us. This is why Romans 8 tells us that his spirit communicates to our spirit that we are children of God. You have a spirit and it's been regenerated through death and resurrection of Jesus. And that regenerated spirit can commune with the spirit of the living God if we learn to develop the connection between God and us. 
And we call those things spiritual practices, spiritual disciplines, which is why the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. What are we doing Tuesday night? We're trying to pray together as a church. Why is that? Because if we want to know, look, our relationship with God and our approval of God and all of that, it's done. That's a done deal. We don't even need to talk about that except to tell people who don't know and thank God for it. Like, it's a done deal. God loves us and he approves of us. But if we want to build the relationship that we, that we have access to now, it takes discipline. Working out the salvation with fear and trembling. Taking every thought into captivity. Learning to nurture the voice of the Spirit. My sheep know my voice. And learning to know the voice of God. This is why Paul says, he says, to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. And when we use these eyes and these ears, oftentimes we miss what's deeper inside is that God, Emmanuel, is still with us. And we have to learn to nurture the deeper part. To learn to know God through prayer. To learn to hear the voice of the Spirit in Scripture and in prayer. And the reason, one of the reasons we're gathering together Tuesday night is because we got to find ways to help each other learn how to know God in the Spirit. To know, to understand how to comprehend God and experience God together. Just like that video that we showed at the beginning. We're learning to walk with God. And he now is not standing here in the flesh next to me like Jesus was with those apostles. Now I'm told that he lives within me. He's even closer to me than he was to Peter because he lives in me, you know? And and I should be able to have a phenomenal relationship with him. But that takes work because I'm used to seeing things in the physical. See, they thought the kingdom was a physical one, but Jesus says the destination is the Father, fellowship with the Father. And what he says is, you know the way to the Father. You know the way to peace. You know the way to the wellspring of joy. In this world, there's all sorts of trouble, but I've overcome this world. All you have to do is find me, listen to me, obey me, walk with me, keep in step with the Spirit. And as you learn to walk with me, you have freedom in this place of turmoil. You have joy in a place of sorrow. Blessed are you if you mourn, because I'm right there to comfort you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so there's two things to develop this life with God. One is this life of the spiritual disciplines, particularly of prayer. And I want to urge you to be here on Tuesday night. If there are things in your life that need prayer over, we can take care of that on Tuesday night. If, there, if there's the need to develop personal spiritual disciplines, we're going to figure out how to do that together, you know? And that's the idea of Tuesday night. But secondly, it's not just to develop the spiritual disciplines, it's to obey. Jesus says all over chapter 15, he says, remain in my love. And this is how you remain in my love. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Just the way I kept my father's commandments and remain in his love. And so here's the thing. Once we learn to, to understand and know God in, 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 our, in, our, in our spirit, then what happens is, is he calls us to things. And every person in this room who knows and loves God, God is calling us to something right now. Each one of us. He's whispering to us right now. 
There's a next step that the Spirit is calling us to. It might be to let go of something that you've been holding on to for a while. It might be to forgive someone. It might be to go and build a bridge and talk to that neighbor. It may be that I need to stop worrying about something. It may be any number of things. You know, it may be just getting in the Scriptures. Whatever it is, the Spirit is, is uniquely whispering into your life right now and calling out to you and saying that he has something for you. And that's not just the Spirit. This is Jesus, and this is the Father. You know, Acts 7 and Romans 9, Romans 8, both say that the Spirit of God is the Spirit of Jesus. He's called the Spirit of Jesus. This is Jesus himself with us, inside of us. And Jesus is there guiding us. And so many times in our life, we've come up to street level and we've looked around and there was a map for our life and it all made sense to us. And then we got to this place where our world got rocked and we looked around and we're like, we don't know which way is north anymore and we don't need to know the big picture. We, just like the apostles, don't need to know how it's all going to work out. We just need to know where he is and be with him. You know what Peter and the other guys did when Jesus died? You know what they did? They went fishing. You know why? Because that's what they knew before Jesus. This whole thing that had happened over the last three and a half years, they were smart enough to know they couldn't do it without Jesus. So when they were lost and confused, they went back to fishing. And then Jesus shows up. You remember this? Jesus shows up at the Sea of Galilee and they're up there fishing. And he says, he yells out to them and he says, cast your nets onto the other side. Sound familiar? This has happened before. They don't really think of it at first. They cast the nets to the other side. All of a sudden, boom, they catch all these fish. Peter jumps out the boat because he knows that voice. He's seen that thing happen before. And there's only one person who does that, and it's Jesus. And before, when he wanted to get off the boat, it's because he wanted to walk on water, because he wanted to see physical manifestation of all this stuff. This time, he doesn't care. He dives into the water because he just wants to get to Jesus, because that's all he cares about. Because he says, it doesn't matter to me anymore whether my life works out the way I think it should. I don't have a clue how it's supposed to go. All I know is that when I'm with Jesus, things work work. And when I'm not with Jesus, everything's a total mess. I need my GPS. I need my guide. I need my God with me. I need Emmanuel. And I'm going to do whatever it takes to find Emmanuel, God with us. And so he dives in and he chases after him. And every time we learn to listen to God, we, we choose to trust him and obey him then we find more and more and more just how successful this whole thing is where we learn to let go of control of our lives, where we realize that we're not the ones who hold the map. We're not the ones who see the whole picture. We're not the ones who can understand. It doesn't matter if I if I did this plus this plus this. It's not necessarily going to equal this. If any of us have lived any life, we've learned that. We can't control our life. But what we've also learned if we follow Jesus is that every Every time we trust him, that he never steers us wrong. And he leads us to a place of peace and to a place of joy. So I don't know what's going on in your life today, but I know that if you love him and if you trust him, he is with you and he wants to guide you. And even though that next thing that he's calling you to might be scary and it might go against your intuition, he is God with you, and he's got the plan that brings joy. And we need to learn to rest in that love, to trust in his presence, and to follow him.
is leading. Amen? Let's pray.